0: I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Carroll, a Professor of Law and Director of the Program on Information Justice and Intellectual Property at Washington College of Law at American University, and Martin Frank, Executive Director of the American Physiological Society. Both have written perspective articles on open access scientific publishing. To set the stage, Dr. Frank, can you explain how scientific publishing has traditionally been financed and what the terms of access to research results have been?
1: Gladly. Uh, the American Physiological Society has been publishing since 1898, and we have migrated to online publication as of 1996, uh, working with Highwire Press. When we did so, uh, we had a predominantly subscription based model where institutions and individuals would uh, purchase access to the journals. However, in the year 2000, uh, reflecting on the importance of the online access to utilization of the content within the journals, uh, the APS began offering free access to its contents 12 months after publication. That has prevailed even with the government mandates uh, that uh, both NIH-funded and non-NIH-funded content is freely available 12 months after publication, and institutions subscribe to gain access immediately upon publication.
0: Professor Carroll, can you outline the goal of the open access movement and the primary arguments that underlie it?
2: Sure. Thanks. Um, The goal is to take full advantage of the opportunities that digital technologies give us for scientific communication. Um, That means looking at the fundamental economics of scientific communication, recognizing that the authors of journal articles and the reviewers of those articles are not paid uh, and do not need to be paid for their contributions. Um, open access seeks to maximize the access and reuse of scientific articles by making them freely available on the Internet under terms of reuse that would permit text mining and other kinds of translation and productive reuse such as that.
0: But traditional academic and scientific journal publishers argue that their business model supports added value that's essential for the scientific community. The selection of high-quality research and clear, honest, and accurate communication of results. Professor Carroll, how do you respond to that argument?
2: Uh, So it's not really an argument. It's an observation about one type of publication. And open access is fully consistent with a form of pre-publication peer review that does uh, quality selection. And so there's nothing about the open access movement that requires a change in publishing business model. It's just for subscription access, there would be some delay before you achieve open access. There is a separate kind of publishing model, often called open access publishing, by which the author or the author's funder pays for the cost of review and publication and then the results are immediately available on the Internet under an open license. But that is not a requirement of the open access movement as a whole.
1: Mike, can I uh, ask a clarifying question? Uh, you seem to uh, suggest that delayed open access is an appropriate and reasonable alternative uh, to the subscription-based model.
2: I would say that delayed access is fully consistent with the subscription model. Um, The New England Journal of Medicine makes its content available six months after the date of publication and has not seen its subscription revenues been adversely impacted by that decision. So within the open access movement as a whole, that would be one version, the so-called green road to open access.
0: Dr. Frank, you argue that open access is not without its own costs and that, in fact, for research-intensive institutions, the costs of that author fee model will be far higher than the current costs for library acquisitions. Have research universities recognized that problem?
1: No, I think not. Uh, There is a cost for publication, I think uh, OA advocates and uh, traditional publishers all agree there is a cost to putting the final product out uh, in a format that is appropriate for utilization of the research community and for the public. Currently, most subscription-based publishers recover those costs through subscriptions. In a gold open access environment uh, where the author or institution or funding agency covers a cost of publication which can vary from several hundred dollars to $5,000, those costs are paid for and the expenses of publication are handled appropriately. One of the things that struck me as I was putting the perspective together was an article that appeared in the U.S. News & World Report in which it happened to list the Serials Acquisition Budget or Journal Acquisition Budget for Harvard Medical School's library, which was listed at $3.75 million. Doing a web of science analysis, uh, I was able to determine that over 10,000 articles were published in the same year and had Harvard Medical School faculty affiliations listed. So even if you were looking at a $1,000 per article for Gold OA, the institution would be responsible for a $10 million uh, fee as opposed to a $3.75 million fee. And I don't think most institutions are recognizing that. I know I gave a talk at Mass General Hospital, uh, Harvard, and The people in attendance were not aware of the potential financial cost of OA, and I think that needs to be communicated clearly, because at the end of the day, it will be the research intensive institutions who end up covering the cost of open access publications so that everybody throughout the world can gain access, including many commercial firms that normally would pay for subscriptions.
2: There are some false premises in both the question and the response that you just heard. Um, It assumes that the cost of publication, which is currently about $5,000 per article for subscription-based journals, is a cost that should stay constant, and it uh, assumes that the university would directly be funding that acquisition in a gold open access uh, world rather than the funders, which is the much more likely result. So in terms of the hit on Harvard's budget, it's very unlikely that it would go up in the way that Dr. Frank just suggested. And it is important to recognize that that cost of publication should not be assumed to be constant because with 50% of the literature being published by commercial publishers, Elsevier, one of the largest of those, uh, their science, technical, and medical publishing division, enjoys a 35% profit. So that's a wealth transfer out of the academy to the shareholders of those privately owned companies. And that's an inefficiency in the system that could be remedied. And in a gold open access world, there should be more competition among authors to place their articles. And we should imagine the total cost of scholarly communication would come down Now, the distribution of that cost may shift, but the total cost would come down. Um, And if the research-intensive universities end up paying a slightly larger share in that world, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that.
1: If I may just respond as well, uh, I think it is a discussion that has not been had fully. I I don't agree with the, and and maybe for the commercial publishers, we look at a $5,000 per article cost. Uh, for the American Physiological Society, for many society publishers, it's more like 2500 to 3000 But I think the cost is immaterial. I think in, in, in if I reflect on the current budgetary crises that we have here in the United States and the inability of our Congress to make any decision on what the budget should be and recognizing that, For NIH, the budget has been flat, essentially flat, since 2003. I don't think we can rely on the NIH and federal agencies to cover the cost of publication. Uh, Those funds will have to be derived from other sources, and they will either come from the individual or from the institution. Too many of my colleagues have many of their publications uh, submitted after the research dollars have dried up they still need to get those papers published so that when they submit a renewal they will be able to show some progress and the source of funding for those has to come from the institution. We're not going to be expecting that the investigator to pay one,
0: two, three thousand dollars for an open access fee. Professor Carroll, in another Perspective article Hogue warns about what she calls predatory open access publishers who are using the author fee model to collect large sums of money simply to post research articles with no quality control. Do you see that too? And if so, what are the implications of that kind of practice for scientific knowledge?
2: It does exist, but it exists for the subscription-based model as well. There are opportunists out there in the world who will try to sell you a low-quality product that is disguised as something of quality. So the response has to be better information in the market about quality and making sure that both authors and readers have some understanding about the relative quality of of what they're reading and whether it's properly been peer-reviewed or not. But I don't see that as a problem that's isolated to open access publishing. It's it's a publishing problem writ large.
0: Dr. Frank, clinical research on new therapies for patients may require particular scrutiny for safety and effectiveness. So should we be concerned if these research articles are simply being posted by a high-volume open access publisher and not closely reviewed for quality?
1: I think there is great concern with respect to the Potential of predatory open access, uh, even to take Dr. Carroll's approach, predatory subscription journals uh, that publish the content without adequate peer review. I know there is rigorous review associated with New England Journal of Medicine. I've been able to have discussions with Dr. Drazen about it. Uh, there needs to be the proper peer review review Uh, statistical analyses to make sure that clinical studies are valid, appropriate, and bear the test of time, uh, ultimately, to allow it to be published in a respectable journal. I think one of the concerns that was raised back in 1999 when this whole idea of open access was raised by the NIH leadership, the view was that the NIH would provide a repository for non-peer-reviewed articles, and there was great concern expressed about the fact that the NIH impromptu would be on all articles, uh, and the public would have a hard time differentiating what was real and what was not. That is, in part, some of my concern about uh, some of the new journals that are publishing immediately and allowing for post-publication peer review. Uh, I think it is better to make sure that the article is uh, validated before published, and the public, unfortunately, does not have the ability to differentiate those that are appropriately peer-reviewed and those that are not.
2: Um, When we think about peer review, there are three versions of peer review that we might have. And I want to point out that there's nothing about the open access argument that argues in favor of one of these models over another. Um, so in some ways, these conversations are separate, but they do go to the different ways we might use the Internet to change the speed and the type of scientific communication. So what we have now is peer review in which a reviewer is answer two questions. Is this valid science? If it is, how important is this result to the field? And that then tells you where, sort of in the pecking order of journals, the the article might properly be published. There's a different form of pre-publication peer review in which the reviewer answers only the first question, is this valid science? And then the market decides how important the result is. And there's a third model, uh, which Dr. Frank just mentioned, which is publish immediately, and then the market both decides whether it's valid science and how important the result is. And in different disciplines, that may work better. Certainly the physicists um, through the archive have been exchanging pre-peer-reviewed copies of their articles for years, um, and in that discipline, that kind of exchange works very well. Clearly, the clinical literature is the most sensitive because you don't want people making clinical decisions based on results that haven't been validated as, as valid science. But we also have to recognize the downsides of the second step in the quality control. The recent paper published in PNAS about sepsis was turned down by both science and nature because the human-based data was not validated with the mouse model data And the researchers showed that the mouse model actually is not a good uh, basis for predicting how that disease will operate in in humans. So high-quality, big-impact research was turned down under the peer review system that we have today.
1: I think I would agree that the system is not perfect. But like democracy, it's the best thing we have. So I think we don't want to throw out peer review with the bathwater, as the saying goes. And uh, the biggest concern is that the articles are adequately reviewed before they are published. Uh, 99% of them will catch what needs to be caught. Uh, There will be some that slip through the cracks. I think that's just the nature of the beast.
0: Let's look at another aspect of open access. Professor Carroll, you've been closely involved with Creative Commons, which has developed copyright licenses that permit much more widespread and varied use of intellectual property than has traditionally been acceptable. How extensively have those licenses been used, and have there been any unanticipated effects? Uh, The
2: theory is that copyright assumes that authors want a certain level of control over their works of authorship, and they get automatically a set of exclusive rights from the law. Creative Commons allows authors to choose to give back to the public some of those use rights through an open license. And we have six different versions, depending on how much control the author wants to retain. Um, They've been used in all different kinds of fields, from education, open online courseware, in the arts, we've had professional artists, we've had uh, amateurs using them. Um, and in, the, in scientific publication, many of the open access publishers uh, that use the supply side funded model use the Creative Commons attribution license, which says you can do anything you want with this as long as you give me credit. And when you give me credit, you cannot imply that I am endorsing what you've done, for instance, translate it into a different language but you can say that I'm the source of the original work. Um, Increasingly, it's being adopted by institutions. The World Bank has now adopted that license I just mentioned for all of its internally published research. Um, And in terms of unanticipated consequences, I would say we were pleased to learn that we were filling a demand. We weren't sure when we wrote the licenses whether folks really wanted to take this option, but the widespread adoption has been very rewarding.
0: Dr. Frank, as the director of an organization that publishes a number of scientific journals, what's your view of the Creative Commons licenses?
1: Uh, APS and most scholarly societies still maintain the copyright transfer that the author will undertake when publishing in our journals. We are looking at the Creative Commons licenses, and as Dr. Carroll suggested, there are six flavors to the Creative Commons license. Uh, some which are more restrictive than others, obviously, just like copyright is. Uh, So we are looking at that. Uh, We are in the process of launching an open access journal, which will use a CCBY license in part because we are partnering with the Physiological Society and many of their authors are Wellcome Trust funded. And the CCBY has been uh, a requirement of funding from the Wellcome Trust. Uh, the only issue that we have right now with the Creative Commons license of CCBY is that it precludes any publisher, from at least my understanding, it precludes the publisher from making reprints available to a pharmaceutical company that might want to utilize them in generating revenue for the publisher itself. Uh, Under the CCBY, it's my understanding that the pharmaceutical company can just use it with attribution. Uh, And that, for a basic science journal, is not a large revenue stream. For a clinical journal, it can be a potentially large revenue stream.
2: If I can just add, well, it is true that the license would give the pharmaceutical company the ability to print its own reprints as long as they give the journal and the author attribution. But one would imagine that the pharmaceutical company's interest would be in having officially reprinted reprints as part of its marketing strategy. So I'm not sure that I would see the that reprint revenue stream actually diminish for that reason.
1: We will watch it and see. As I said, it's it's not critical for basic science journals, but it does play out for clinical journals.
0: Finally, a question for you both. In her perspective article on open access publishing, Wolpert expresses the view that the transition is inevitable. Starting with you, Dr. Frank, do you agree? And if so, what should we be doing to prepare for it?
1: Well, I think there is a transition that is ongoing. I was asked a question similar to that at a talk that I gave to the UCSD library. Uh, and as I reflect on it, the open access movement to a great degree was a response to what were perceived to be great profit made by the commercial publishers. And if you look at the tradition of scholarly publishing, the society started the scholarly publishing routine. Many of us were perceived as good guys because we held down subscription prices, but in part we did that by having page charges associated with our journals. The commercial journals, commercial publishers were able to launch many journals uh, at a speed that most societies were unable to do so, and what they did is they generally did not have page charges and recovered costs from the libraries through subscriptions.
0: The open access
1: movement, gold open access at least, uh, has the risk of where does the money come from for those investigators whose grants have dried up, for the academic institutions that don't have the resources, and for funding agencies who find them constrained by political situations. So the problem I see evolving is... Will we end up at a green open access environment, which allows institutions to subscribe to journals and publishers to recover some of the costs in that way? Uh, Will we have a gold OA world, which I think may be more problematic if we really reflect on where the coverage of costs will be coming from? I actually said to my colleagues that I think the future may actually reside in the society model, where it's a shared pain, where we ask authors to pay some, whether it's in page charges or publishing charges, and we ask institutions to pay some as well, so that we end up with a green, open access environment. I also think we can hopefully explore and have dialogue on where the content should reside who do make content freely available from their websites. The concern many of us have is the duplication that's associated with repositories, both at institutions and in funding agencies,
2: which draw off revenue that can be used more constructively.
0: And Professor Carroll?
2: I definitely think the share of publications that are published under the supply-side funded model is going to grow. Currently, that's only about 3% of the market, but it is the fastest-growing segment of the market. We see increasingly new journals and new publishers introducing um, journals funded under this model, just as Dr. Frank suggested his society was doing. Uh, I don't think it completely switches. I do think that the general interest science journals with a lot of front matter, um, science, nature, and the like, may well retain the subscription model and that spreading the costs for all of that front matter may be a better way to fund that kind of publication. But for the research literature, the pressure is that researchers want to get their research out, they want it published quickly, and they want it published online to maximize their impact. And I think that's part of what's driving the move towards this switch in the funding model. I do think the cost of those publications will come down as more efficiencies are realized in the use of the technology, and I think that the time to publication will be improved as well. In terms of Dr. Frank's last point about where you'll get access from, I'm less concerned about which repository the article sits on, but I do want it to be in a format that can be easily um, read by machines so that we can improve the quality of text mining software to draw more of the knowledge out of the literature to improve the direction of future research and the quality of future research. And I think that's one of the advantages that the uh, author's funded model will increasingly display and, and be
0: appreciated down the line. Thank you, Professor Carroll. Dr. Frank.